0: You know, the thing about women, how's that for a way to begin a sermon? Choose your words carefully, Jared. The thing about women is that they have more value and more significance than the modern feminist agenda has ever even dreamed. Women have more value and significance than the modern feminist agenda has ever even imagined. What I mean is whatever value feminism claims to put on women, it does not even compare to what the Bible says women are designed by God to be and do. It doesn't even compare. It's it's not even in the same zip code To which one might reply, well, right, but feminism stands for the equality of men and women. That has value. That certainly has changed things for the better, wouldn't you agree? And I totally do agree. It's just that women being equal to men is not a feminist idea, that's a biblical one. Feminism hijacked that from us, and then they claimed it as their own, as if they came up with something profound. But you see, we have verses for this. The Apostle Paul said this very thing 2,000 years before the women's rights people ever even came into existence. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. When God created male and female, manhood and womanhood, masculinity and femininity, when he did that, he embedded within them an object lesson. Didn't he? A parable a parable of his entire redemptive plan. You understand, men are to reflect the strength and the love and the self-sacrifice of Christ. Women are to reflect the character, the grace, the beauty of the bride that he bought with his blood. You understand, when you think about this, it means that womanhood exists to help display the masterpiece of the very plan of redemption itself. You can't get any higher than that. You cannot get more significant than that. No one holds womanhood and femininity in higher esteem than the very God who created them. Womanhood, you have to understand, is at the very center of God's ultimate purpose for history. You understand that, don't you? God did not have to do male and female, but he did. He did do that, and he did do that because men and women, manhood and womanhood, masculinity and femininity is not merely a necessity for procreation, but a beautiful design for the fulfillment of a mission. And by that, I mean the Great Commission itself. And Speaking of women making significant contributions to the Great Commission, that's exactly what we see in Paul's letter to Titus. You can see that I'm calling the sermon this morning domestic engineers. Domestic engineers for the glory of Christ, a motherhood meditation from Titus chapter 2. And I don't know how that reads to you, but domestic engineers for the glory of Christ. That's my theological definition of a wife and a mom. And I know I know, there's nothing in the Bible that says that we have to celebrate Mother's Day. There's no apostolic mandate. The Apostle Paul doesn't say anything that we have to take a particular Sunday to talk about uh, uh, women and wives and moms. I could have preached Isaiah 17 and 18 today, which is every mom's favorite passage anyway, and I would have violated zero protocols at all. And so we don't have to do this. And yet, all that to say, Proverbs 31, which is all about a godly woman and a wife and a mom, says this says a woman of excellence who can find and her worth is far above jewels and it goes on to say her children rise up and bless her her husband also praises her saying many daughters have done nobly but you excel them all give to her from the fruit of her hands Let her works praise her in the gates. So we don't have to do this, but we really, really want to. We want to team up with the children and the men of Proverbs 31 and say, a woman of excellence who can find her worth as far above jewels. Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. And one of the best ways to do that, believe it or not, is Titus chapter 2 which you may or may not know, it's one of the most strategic chapters in the entire New Testament for how to build a healthy church. It is. And the reason for that is because contained in Titus 2 is this personalized game plan for how each particular group of people in the church can live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission and the glory of Christ. You see, in this chapter, Paul talks about older men and older women and younger women and younger men, and he gives Titus these really helpful discipleship instructions for how to help each one of these groups maximize their lives for the glory of Christ and the global cause of Christ unfolding in the world. You see, you have to understand the reason why we make such a big deal about manhood and womanhood, about masculinity and femininity. It has nothing to do with conservative politics. It has everything to do with cosmic significance. Because who a man is, who a woman is, what singleness is, what marriage is, has everything to do with what God is doing in the world in and through his son. God made us this way as men, as women, and when men and women pursue their roles in harmony together, the beauty and the grace and the glory and the worth And the supremacy of Jesus Christ is put on open display. So being Mother's Day, of course, we want to look at what Paul says about women and wives and moms. Because whether you're a mother or married or not, it doesn't matter. The text is for you. You are in the sacred text, which means Christ has something for you today. You have to understand, to be a woman in Christ does not make you a different kind of Christian. It makes you a different kind of woman, a God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated woman who can make a greater impact for eternity than most people have ever even imagined. So younger women and older women called to disciple them. Let's go to the text and let's see exactly what that is. If you have those notes that were available, here's where we're going. You can see this. This morning, I want you to see from our text, six Christ-exalting virtues of womanhood. Six Christ-exalting virtues of womanhood taught by older women to the younger that the word of God may be exalted and displayed. That's where we're going. Six Christ-exalting virtues of womanhood taught by older women to the younger that the word of God may be exalted and displayed. And so the first Christ-exalting virtue is this. Number one, young women must be taught to love their husbands. Young women must be taught to love their husbands. Now, when I say that young women must be taught to do that, I'm referring to the fact that Paul wants the older women in the local church to intentionally invest the word of God into the lives of the younger women in the church and of this church in particular. It's called ministry. It's called discipleship. This is how the Great Commission operates. Look what Paul says in verse 3 to the older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior not slanderous or double-tongued, not enslaved to much wine. And here it is. They are to be kalladidaskelos, teachers of what is good. Teachers, he says. Older women are to be teachers, faculty in a local congregation. It's very interesting that Paul's personalized game plan for all older women, however you want to define that, maybe 50-ish and up, how they can maximize their effectiveness for the Great Commission is to be teachers in the local church. And yet the question becomes, well, who exactly are they supposed to teach? And what exactly are they supposed to teach them? Verses 4 and 5. Older women are to be Teachers of what is good, for what purpose? To what end, verse 4, that they may instruct the young women, notice, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded, to be pure, to be workers at home, to be kind, to be subject or submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God should not be reviled. Older saints, older women in this church, do you see this? Your mission, should you choose to accept it, and I hope you do, because the health of the church depends upon it in many ways, but your mission is to be teachers and trainers of the young women in this church and help them to be all that God is calling them to be and do in Christ. That's called ministry. That's called discipleship. This, this, is, how, this is part of how the Great Commission works. This is how a church becomes a healthy church that makes an impact in the world. And yet the question is, what exactly does God call young women to be and do in Christ? And you see that number one on the list is that older women are to teach the younger women, notice, to love their husbands. To love their husbands. Which is interesting, this is on the list, right? (laughs) Younger women do not need to be taught to love their husbands. I mean, look at them. They're so in love. They're so cute, they're holding hands. I mean, they should be the ones teaching us how to love, right? But the reality is they do, they do need to be taught that. And the very fact that they do need to be taught to love their husbands has some pretty profound implications, not the least of which is that whatever authentic love in marriage is, it is not natural or obtainable on our own. Rather, that that true, authentic love requires supernatural power that we don't inherently possess. We have to be taught how to love. So, you understand, older women, part of your calling by the God of the universe is to come alongside younger women and help them to work through all these issues to help them love their husbands in a way that puts the glory of Jesus Christ on display. What a calling! They need you to teach them how to do this. The question is, what does it mean for a wife to love her husband? I mean, if the standard of biblical love is way higher than we could possibly attain on our own, and it is that, then what does it mean for a wife to love her husband? And it means this. Listen carefully. For a wife to love her husband means that she does whatever it takes even at great cost to herself, to give him what is best. The question is, what is best? And the answer is, Christ himself is what is best. Therefore, true, authentic, biblical love is her doing whatever it takes, even at great cost to herself, to help her husband prize Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That is love. You see, ladies, if you're married, you know you know this. Your husband has all sorts of needs, struggles, and weaknesses and deficiencies and inadequacies and and you see every one of those things can only ultimately be filled and fulfilled by Christ therefore your calling as a wife is to mediate and display whatever it is about Christ that your husband needs at any particular moment. In other words, your job is to make tangible for him the glorious, the most glorious and satisfying person in the universe. And if that's true, if that's true, that your job is to mediate and display Christ, if that's true, that, your, that love is to make tangible the most glorious and beautiful person and satisfying person in the universe, and it is, sometimes that means Encouragement. Sometimes that means physical affection. Sometimes it is service. Sometimes it is sacrifice. Sometimes it is dying to self. Sometimes it is correction. Sometimes it is warning. And yes, sometimes it is even rebuke. And if you did this, this changes everything about a marriage relationship, doesn't it? Because it means that your fundamental aim is not ultimately his happiness but his happiness in Christ. It means that your aim is not merely to get him to love and serve you more, which would be awesome, but to love and serve Christ more. And yet, in so loving and serving Christ more, he will love and serve you more. That's the supernatural logic of love that changes everything. And it kind of reminds me of the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding. If you have not seen it, You don't have to, it's not really worth your time, but there's this scene where the mother is giving her daughter advice, and she says, Tula, you know that the husband is the head, but the wife is the neck, and she turns the head wherever she pleases. There's some truth to that in a really godly and non-manipulative way. There is some truth to that. You see, if you want your husband to love you and to serve you and to lead you in a way that brings unbelievable blessing upon your soul, this kind of love is the neck that turns the head. And so older women in this church, my female faculty In this blood-bought flock of God, your job is to come alongside the younger women and help them do this very thing that Paul is talking about. And yet the question is, how do you do that? How do you help them to love their husbands? And I think what you should do is you should give them the two A's. The two A's that will help them love their husbands in a radical, supernatural way that puts Christ on display. A number one, older women, you need to help them be astonished. You need to help them be astonished. What I mean is the power to love highly imperfect men. It starts, it begins with them being astonished by the infinite, eternal, unconditional, undeserved love that Christ has for their very own souls. Do you see? The more they can be exhilarated by all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished, then they will have the power to love highly imperfect men. A number two, older women, you need to teach younger women how to abide. Abide. I'm talking John 15... Abiding in the true vine, Jesus Christ. I'm talking about moment by moment, second by second, desperation and dependence upon Christ through his word. That is the way that we access the supernatural power to do all that God commands us to be and do. Older women, you need to teach the younger women how to abide in Jesus Christ, to cling to him moment by moment, second by second. That is where the power to love comes from. And that brings us to the second Christ-exalting virtue, that older women are to teach the younger women. Number two, young women must be taught to love their children. Young women must be taught to love their children. You can totally tell that the key word link of love here groups these first two virtues together as a package deal. Look again at verse 4. It says older women are to be instructing the young women to love their husbands and, and to love their children. To love their children. Again, it's ironic to me that this is on the list. It's strange, isn't it? Moms do not need to be taught to love their children. And Paul, if you would just get out of your office once in a while and actually be with the people, you would understand that. And yet, that being said, that is true. There are some things about loving kids that is natural and instinctive. We don't have to be taught that. And yet, the very fact that it is on the list tells us that there is something about loving children that is profoundly supernatural. And it is profoundly supernatural. Because at the end of the day, to be a mom ultimately means that you are making disciples for the Great Commission, right? And yet, it's making disciples that you live with every single day. And yet, what that requires is radical dependence upon Christ for resources, get this, that you don't inherently possess. So, older women, there is a ministry for you here, and the ministry is the the ministry of coming alongside tired mamas in the trenches of motherhood and teaching them to love their children because whatever that means, it was not automatically downloaded into them before they left the hospital. They have to be taught how to do that. And what it means, and what it means to love their children, is exactly what it means to love their husbands. Moms have as their mission to. Do whatever it takes, even at great cost to themselves to give their children what is best. And what is best for their children is Christ himself. Therefore, true, authentic, biblical love is to help their kids prize Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. It is to make tangible for them the most beautiful and glorious and satisfying person in the universe. To mediate and display whatever it is about Christ. Christ that their kids need at any particular moment. That is love. one could very rightly ask, well, that sounds good, that sounds great, but how do you actually do that in the nitty, gritty, dirty, diaper, dirty dish, trenches, and grime of life? How do you actually do that? Let's put it this way. Since Paul is telling the older women to invest in the younger women and to teach them how to do this, what might it possibly look like for the older women to do that, to teach them? and i will say older ladies you probably know how to do this better than i but here are five practical ways that older women can teach the young moms to love their children five practical ways that older women can teach the young moms to love their children number 1 number 1 older women teach moms to give their kids order and structure and boundaries teach young moms to give their kids order and structure and boundaries now now obviously I'm not saying that the home has to be run like a boot camp, or like a factory, right? That this, this is not like a nuclear power plant where there's all these strict protocols and rigid procedures. No one's talking about that. And yet, at the same time, a cluttered home and a chaotic schedule is good for no one. For the mom or for the kids. Now, of course, we understand life with little kids is just going to be kind of crazy. It's going to be kind of chaotic, right? It's just a a lot of the time is going to be spent putting out fires. We get that. But you see, if that's all the mom is doing all day long, not only will she be absolutely exhausted, she's never actually going to get to the gospel with her kids, which which is what her kids really need anyway. You won't have time to shape their little souls and their little minds with truth. And so come alongside young moms if they don't know how to do this and help them to learn to order and structure the day with clear parameters and expectations and goals and objectives to be proactive, not just reactive, to be intentional, not just a slave to the tyranny of the urgent. Number Number two, older women teach moms to give their kids loving and consistent discipline teach moms to give their kids loving and consistent discipline. And by loving, I mean not in anger, and by consistent, I mean that the standards and expectations don't fluctuate and change day after day, because nothing disheartens and embitters and confuses and discourages and exasperates children more than fluctuating unpredictable standards of discipline. In other words, let's be frank, if it gets a spanking today, it should get a spanking tomorrow. Number three, older women teach moms to shepherd the hearts of their children, not just modify behavior. Teach moms to shepherd their children, not just modify external behavior. In other words, teach moms that one of their main goals is to help their kids see that they are desperate sinners who desperately need a savior. Help them see the humanly incurable corruption of their own hearts and the glorious beauty, the transcendent beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help them parent in a way that sees, that their kids see that they not only need a change in their behavior, but that they need a new heart. That they not only do wrong sometimes, but that the wrong lives inside of them and that their only hope in this life is the sovereign transforming mercy of God. In other words, teach them that they need to be born again. Number four. Number four, older women teach moms to give their kids the gift of letting dad lead when he's home. Teach moms to give their kids the gift of letting dad lead when he's home. In other words, if there's a husband around, the kids need to see that he is the main authority and disciplinarian. He's not only that, he is other things too. He is a hugger, he is a player, he is a a game winner, he is a wrestler, he is a Barbie doll player, he is all of those things too. And yet, and yet, the kids need to see a clear authority structure in the home with active and not passive dads. Get rid of the man cave. They, They need to see men leading in the home with loving courage and biblical conviction. Number five. Number five, older women teach moms how to nourish their own souls with the word of God. Teach moms to nourish their own souls with the word of God. Because the best moms are not those necessarily with the, the most clean, cleanest house or the cutest clothes or the most artistic or the most creative or whose homes look like they should be in a, in a magazine somewhere. But a mom whose soul is saturated with the word of God. Because a mom in whose soul is richly indwelling the word of Christ is a mom most prepared for the grueling and relentless trenches of motherhood. Which brings us to the third Christ-exalting virtue, number three. Number three, young women must be taught to be sober-minded. They must be taught to be sober-minded. Your version might say self-control. The idea is of having a sober mind. Look what Paul says in verse 5. Older women are to teach younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. And here it is. They are to teach them to be sober-minded, sophronas, sober-minded. And it's very interesting to me how often Paul uses this word in the letter to Titus. Elders, chapter 1, verse 8, are to be sober-minded. Older men, chapter 2, verse 2, are to be sober-minded. Young women, chapter 2, verse 5, are to be sober-minded. Young men, chapter 2, verse 6, are to be sober-minded. Chapter 2, verse 12, says that all of us are to live soberly as we wait day after day for the king to arrive and make all things right. So the point is, whatever it means to be sober-minded, it is central to what it even looks like to be a Christian. And yet, what does it mean? What does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, you can hear the opposite of is to be drunk-minded To be sober-minded is to be balanced, stable, level-headed, not easily driven to excessive emotional extremes. Someone who is sober-minded is not erratic or impulsive, nor do they make hasty, foolish decisions out of fear or emotion. Bottom line is sober-minded woman, or anyone else for that matter, get this, is someone who has a white, knuckled grip control over their own thought lives. That's the issue. This is someone who interprets life not based on how they feel in the midst of their circumstances, but through the God who is sovereign over their circumstances. That's the issue. The bottom line issue for Paul here is your thought life and the first thing that comes into your mind when you are blindsided by the unexpected or overwhelming or the inconvenience. Luke, do you want to get the lapel ready for me? This thing's starting to pop. Here's what Paul's advocating. He is advocating that older women teach the younger women to be theological seamstresses with their thought lives. I don't know the first thing about being a seamstress, but so I'm told. They adjust hems, they fix tears, they mend zippers, they apply buttons, they do alterations on garments. Am I barking up the right tree? Does that sound right? Seems like that's a thing that they do. And yet here's the thing, a theological seamstress does not deal with fabric but with the fabric of their own thought lives. What I mean is they adjust and fix and mend and alter and tie up the loose ends of their thought lives with the unbreakable thread Biblical truth. Paul makes it really clear to Titus that that older women are to come alongside the younger women and and to help them reign in their thought lives and to be sober-minded. And yet the question is, how do you teach someone to be sober-minded? How do you do that? What do you teach them? Because we all know, we all know what it is like. You're fearful, anxious, angry, angry, We're overwhelmed. We all know what it's like when our thought lives are pulled in a thousand different directions because of our circumstances. How do we, in that moment, tie up the threads of a thousand thought lives, thousand thoughts, and be sober-minded? I'll tell you what you do. In those moments when you are fearful and anxious and overwhelmed, you must preach. Here, Luke, I'll go ahead and take Actually, I just need... All right, bear with me just for a second. Okay, so where are we at here? Okay, here's what you need to do. In those moments when you are fearful or anxious or overwhelmed or caught off guard, what you need to do in those moments is you must preach to yourselves with authority. You gotta preach, you gotta preach to yourselves. In fact, what you need to do in those moments is you need to ask yourselves uh, a series of rhetorical questions that only have yes for the answer. I've given you these before. I'm going to give them to you again. Here the, are the kinds of questions that you must absolutely ask yourselves in moments of panic and fear and anxiety and anger. Questions like, does Jesus Christ have all authority over heaven and earth? Yes. Yes. Is Jesus Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come? Yes. Does Jesus Christ uphold all things by the word of his power? Yes. Is every single moment of my life, including this one, under the absolute, undisputed dominion of Jesus Christ? Absolutely it is. And is this moment, of which the outcome seems so uncertain, is even this a gift from his sovereign hand to trust him for the impossible, and will it not in the end work out for his highest glory and for my deepest joy? You know the answer, that is exactly What's going to happen? Those are the kinds of questions we absolutely must ask ourselves in those moments. And you see, we need to stop interpreting our, uh, our lives through our circumstances and start interpreting our lives through the God who is sovereign over our circumstances. You understand, to be sober-minded is not some Zen, Buddhist, poker-faced indifference to the curveballs of life. But rather what it is, is the absolute conviction that Jesus Christ is an absolute control. And when that's a conviction, you will be sober-minded. The fourth Christ-exalting virtue is this, number four, young women must be taught to be pure. Young women must be taught to be pure. And by that, Paul means, of course, sexual purity and holiness. Look at verse five. He says, Older women are to teach young women lots of things, lots and lots of things, not the least of which is to love their husbands to love their children, to be sober-minded, and get this, they are to teach them to be pure. Again, this is surprising and it is on the list. Really, really surprising because isn't sexual purity and lust, this this is a guy's issue, right? Shouldn't we be talking about modesty here? Isn't that the, the thing we should be talking about? And yet the Apostle Paul is not so naive to think that this is a guy's only issue that this is an issue of the soul that trans, transcends gender, that the lion of lust devours its prey from among women and from among men, even pornography, which we've always just associated with the struggle for guys, even it apparently has a higher percentage of female viewers also. And here's the thing about lust, is that we know that it's wrong. We know that it's icky, and yet the question is, do we know biblically what's really wrong with What is the deepest foundational issue of why lust is such a big deal? The answer is this. The deepest reason the Bible gives for why lust is so serious and deadly is because lust is foundationally an idolatry issue. Lust is inherently idolatrous, meaning it's taking something that's not God And it's loving it and worshiping it and trying to be satisfied in it as if it were God. And yet lust is idolatrous in the worst sense possible because lust is also inherently enslaving. It is a monster with an insatiable appetite. The more you feed it, the hungrier it becomes. And it will bleed you and it will feed off of you and it will drain you until it consumes you and then it will leave you for dead. That's the issue. So older women are called by the living God to come alongside younger women and to teach them how to put lust to death with holy violence. Isn't that interesting? And yet before I explain how that might happen, I think I need to just ask. Young women, older women called to disciple them and everybody else, how are you doing on this? How are you doing with with, with lust and, and, and holiness? Because you know that God wants a holy people, doesn't he? Two or three times he says, you must be holy as I am holy. Romans 12.1 says that we are to present our lives, our bodies, a living and holy sacrifice. Ephesians 1.4 says that, that God chose us, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue holiness and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed, happy are the pure in heart because they will see God. So The question is, how does one be holy? How does one put lust to death with holy violence, with extreme prejudice? What do they give them? What do they teach them? And what older women must teach the younger women to put lust to death is this. Listen carefully. That Christ breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. That's what you teach them. In other words, older women are to teach the younger women that the deepest secret in the universe for overcoming all temptation and sin lies not ultimately in the power of the will or moral resolve, but in the sin-bearing sin bearing death of Jesus Christ in their place. Don't you see? The cross of Christ didn't merely make sin forgivable. It made victory over sin inevitable. All holiness is, is conquering with the power of Christ the sin that has already been canceled by the death of christ do you see this is exactly what paul is talking about in Romans 6 and he says knowing this that our old self was crucified together with him old self crucified that our body of sin might be done away with that we would no longer be slaves to sin he says for the one who has died has been freed from sin Therefore let not sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lusts for you are not under for you for sin shall not be master over you for you are not under law but you are under grace do you see what grace is It is not just that which puts an arm around you and says, it is okay, Christ died for that. It is that too, but grace is the power of God to do what God commands. And you understand where that sin-conquering power comes from, don't you? It comes through the sacred text of Holy Scripture. That's where. You understand, we we read the Bible, reading God's word is not only for our personal devotional delight. It is the sword of the spirit that hacks to death sin and temptation. Older women teach the younger women how to be assassins, how to be ninjas with the word of God. And put lust and impurity to death. Which brings us to the fifth Christ-exalting virtue of womanhood. Number five, young women must be taught to be workers at home. Young women must be taught to be workers at home. And I know, just hearing that makes us cringe a little bit, doesn't it? Especially when we read the verse all the way to the end. Look at verse five. Older women are to teach the young women to love their husbands to love their children to be sober minded to be pure here it is to be workers at home to be kind to be subject or submissive to their own husbands that the word of god not be reviled literally blasphemed and so we we flinch and we cringe at this why because because we know what what non-Christians and sadly, very sadly, even some professing Christians would say, should they hear this? And yet I assure you, the problem is not that the text says that moms should be workers at home and submit to their husbands. The problem is in people's mistaken ideas of what those things mean. Because oftentimes what they think they mean and what the Apostle Paul actually means are not at all the same thing. Because think about what it means Let's just take the word workers at home. Three words in Greek, three words in English, one word in Greek. What does it mean to be a worker at home? What it does not mean, what it does not mean is that moms can't have a job outside the home. No one's saying that. She has total freedom in unity with her husband's leadership to pursue additional money-making endeavors and opportunities outside the home. That's totally, totally legitimate. But you would agree, of course, would you not, that 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 is legitimate only to the degree that she does not neglect the home as her primary focus and passion and ministry to which she is to give the best of herself to her husband and to her kids. You would agree with that, right? Right? Because you remember what a stay-at-home mom actually is, don't you? Dare I say that it could be, and probably is among the most significant callings on the face of the planet? Because a worker at home, it, it is not a waitress, a maid, a cook or a chauffeur. No, get this, a stay-at-home mom is a domestic engineer for the glory. What does that mean? It means that a stay-at-home mom pours her soul into making the home a strategic launch pad for the Great Commission. That is exactly what Paul's got in mind. That's my word for a worker at home, a domestic engineer for the Great Commission. Do you know why I call it that? Because it is so massive and gargantuan for the global cause of Christ unfolding in the world. I mean, think about it. A a mom at home, a mom at home with her kids, think about this, is a missionary and a theologian. And yet a, a missionary and theologian of the best kind because they actually live with the people that they're called to reach and teach, and preach, and evangelize with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They get to feed them, and clothe them, and hug them, and tuck them in at night, and read books to them, and put band-aids on them, and minister the gospel of Jesus Christ all in the same day. And you understand, so many of our heroes in the faith that we adore had moms, who were exactly like this, and credit their moms as the one who was the primary influence in their lives. John Newton, slave owner turned pastor, wrote Amazing Grace, maybe you've heard of it. Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, one of the greatest missionaries in, in history. J. Gresham Macon, zealous defender of the faith at Princeton Seminary. Jonathan Edwards, only the greatest theologian America has ever produced, Jim Elliott, missionary and martyr to the Alka Indians, every single one of these men made particular mention of their moms on numerous occasions and the profound impact that they had in their lives. And there are hundreds of thousands, probably millions of unknown people throughout history whose moms made one of the biggest dents and impacts in their lives with the glory of Christ. Don't you see? Being a worker at home is not designed to be a, a prison to constrain you, but rather is that which liberates you to advance the Great Commission in ways that you've never even imagined. Now, again, please hear what I'm saying. Am I saying, am I saying at all that it is Wrong to work full time. That a mom—that it's wrong for a mom to work full time outside the home and putting your kids in daycare or the, at a sitter is in, is inherently sinful, especially single moms. Is anyone saying that here? No one at all is saying that. Everyone's situation is different. No one here is here to critique you. I mean, you might well, very well be in a situation that is beyond your control and forces you to work full-time outside the home. I totally get that. The church is not here to critique that. The church is here to come alongside you and assist you in the greatest mission and ministry in your lives, namely to make disciples of your children. But at the same time, I am saying, I am saying that if you have little ones, that that full-time situation outside the home it's probably not ideal. It's probably not ideal. I am saying, as your shepherd, on the basis of this very text, that would you please consider this a temporary season? And would you please be open to praying about exploring other options to free you to be what Paul is describing here? That's all I'm saying. And our older women, I will say that I, I, am, I am happy to have this conversation with the young women and help them with this, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But my question is, would you be open to having this conversation with young moms? I'm not picking at anyone in particular. I have no one in mind here. I'm just saying, as situations come up, would you be willing to be the ones to have these conversations? I am not talking at all about hard and fast laws and rules and protocols and regulations and harsh, self-righteous things. I'm not talking about any of that at all. I'm just saying, would you be willing to come alongside them and shepherd them and shape them with God's word? That's it. Because according to this text this is what the living God is calling you to do. To train women to be God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated domestic engineers for the glory of Christ and the global cause unfolding in the world. Which brings us finally to the sixth virtue of womanhood. The sixth virtue of womanhood Number six, young women must be taught to be glad-heartedly benevolent. Young women must be taught to be glad-heartedly benevolent, which is a real mouthful, but that's exactly what Paul means when he says that young women are to be taught to be kind. Look again at verse 5. Paul says, Older women... I to teach younger women lots of things, not the least of which is to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded, to be pure, to be workers at home, and they are to teach them to be kind. To be kind, or as I'm about to argue, glad-heartedly benevolent. Because here's the thing about that Greek word kind, is that there's not one single English word that does that word justice. There's not, there's not one that perfectly captures that. But what you can do is you could take a couple of English words and squish them together, put a couple hyphens in the middle, and what you wind up with is this. You get someone who is benevolently or generously, joyfully, who does what is beneficial and useful to others. That's what Paul's talking about. And it makes total sense, does it not, that he talks about glad-hearted benevolence and sacrifice after talking about being a worker at home, right? It makes perfect sense that he would do that because if you think about it, frankly, the grind of motherhood can be absolutely thankless and grueling. Can it not? Moms day after day after day doing what they're supposed to do as moms can begin to feel disconnected. They can begin to feel lonely, burnt out, unsupported, Cut off, fatigued, weary, rarely do they ever get a break. And after a while, their daily tasks in the home can begin to feel arbitrary, tedious, mundane, even meaningless. They they can begin to grow grow resentful and and become discouraged and even depressed. And so, therefore, older women must be conscious. They must remember those days in the past when it was like this. And they must be conscious and aware. And they must come alongside the the younger women to help them fulfill their calling, not through fists that are clenched or teeth that are grit, but to help them, to help them be workers at home with joyful delight and glad-hearted Benevolence, And so let me just pause. Let me just ask the moms out there, how is it going? How is it right now in the trenches of motherhood? I know it's hard. Do you feel discouraged? Do you feel burnt out? Do you feel overwhelmed? And really the question is, older women who are called to disciple them, my question is, what things can you give them? that could create and sustain their joy? What things could older women give the younger women in those situations that could create and sustain their joy? What kinds of things can you give them to hold on to, to create and sustain that joy? And I want to end with five fresh air reminders. Five fresh air reminders that will create and sustain their joy as workers in the home. Fresh air reminder number one. Number one, older women... Remind young moms that their identity is ultimately in Christ, not in what their idea of what the ideal wife and mom is. Let me say that again. Help them remember that their ultimate identity is in Christ and everything that he accomplished, not in what their idea of what an ideal wife and mother is. Because there's so much pressure, isn't there? to look a certain way, to have your kids look a certain way, to have your home look a certain way, to have pictures on Facebook and Instagram look a certain way. And younger moms, they need you to remind them that the most important thing about them is Christ and everything he accomplished. Fresh air reminder number two. Fresh air reminder number two, older women, remind the young moms constantly of the justification accomplished by Christ. Constantly remind them of the justification accomplished by Christ because you remember what justification is, right? justification is the imputation of the righteousness of christ what does that mean it means that the perfect spotless righteousness of christ was transferred to our bankrupt spiritual bank account so that the father when he looks at us sees the perfect spotless righteousness of his son And what that does is give us hope in the face of our failures and gives us humility in the face of our achievements because the only, and I repeat, the only basis by which we are accepted by God is the perfect righteousness of his son in our place. Fresh air reminder number three. Number three, older women remind the younger women that every mundane task of motherhood is a great commission task. Remind them that every mundane task of motherhood is a great commission task. In other words, there is not one thing, not one thing that a mom does as a mom that is insignificant or irrelevant to the global cause of Christ, it's all connected. Think about it. Wars are fought one battle at a time. Battles are fought one bullet at a time. And in the same way, the Great Commission is advanced by moms, one hug at a time, one story read at a time, one diaper changed at a time, one dish washed at a time, one band-aid applied at a time, one gospel conversation at a time. Nothing is irrelevant. All of it has value, and you need to remind them, older women, that Christ will not only reward them for their labors, but that he himself will be their reward. Fresh air reminder number four. Number four. Older women, remind the young moms that you disciple that the greatest, in fact, the only defense against feelings of discouragement and burnout is to remember that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That's it. That is the only defense against discouragement and feelings of burnout You understand, to succeed in the Christian life and to live radical, cutting-edge lives for Jesus Christ, we must master the virtue of desperation to come to grips with our absolute spiritual bankruptcy. We have to remember that in the end, the only card that any of us really has to play is the card of dependence. Dependence and desperation. Dependence upon the true vine, Jesus Christ. The secret to singleness, the secret to marriage, the secret to motherhood, the secret to the entirety of the Christian life is to despair in our worthless resources to live the Christian life and to cast ourselves upon Christ for his endless ones. My point is, older women teach the younger women to abide in the true vine, Jesus Christ. Fresh air reminder number five, and then we're done. Number five, older women remind the younger women that submission to their husbands, when it's done right, by both sides, man and woman, Is not at all a prison to constrain them. But it is that which frees them to be what God created them to be. I know that's loaded. And it's weighted to drop on you at 12 o'clock. This deserves its own sermon. I understand that. But you have to understand that for a wife to submit to her husband has nothing, has nothing to do with a difference in value. It's a difference in role. It's a distinction in role and responsibility. You understand submission is not the brainless, cowering, okay, whatever you say kind of thing. No, submission is intelligent, happy support of a husband's leadership that helps him love and lead in a way that portrays the beautiful parable of Christ and the church. No one's saying it's easy, but when it's done right, it is exhilarating. And by doing it right, I mean that the husband has to lead with love. No one's saying this is simple. But when it's done right, with a husband's love as they ought, it is satisfying. So as I close, let me say this. Older women and younger women, you got to remember, God did not have to do this male and female. He didn't. But he did do that. And the reason he did is because man and woman, manhood and womanhood, masculinity and femininity, male and female, with all their differences and profound similarities, are precious gifts to the world to put his multifaceted glory on display. And all we wanted to do this morning was to rise up with the children and the husband of Proverbs 31 and say to the women, to the wives, and to the moms, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Oh well, Lord, we are grateful for texts that we would have never chosen. We are grateful that you are clear in your word and, the, and that you spell out very clearly what men and women are called to be and do. And thank you, O oh Lord, that, that men and women are so much, so much greater, O oh Lord, the, the, the culture, the, the people in the culture, they have such small, narrow, parochial, sad views of, of men and women. Your view, O oh Lord. What you reveal to us in your word is glorious and beautiful and profound and eternally significant. Thank you for showing us that what it means to be man, what it means to be woman, what it means to be single or married has cosmic significance. So Lord, I pray that you would use this text and others to bring great encouragement to our souls, that our street-level theology plays out in what it means to be man and what it means to be woman. And we ask you for your help to do those things in a way that reveals and displays and and causes your beauty to be seen. And we give you thanks for that in your son's matchless name.